0: Make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. No, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial
1: or yeah, impolite. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, ex-Muslim host, Aina keeping it non-controversial. Hello dear listeners, thanks for tuning in for yet another episode of Polite Conversations. Please keep in mind that this chat is being recorded about a month before it's scheduled for release, so apologies if we miss some recent relevant story from when you're actually hearing this. In case you missed my announcement a couple of episodes ago, I'm just about nine months pregnant as I record this. I'm trying to record stuff in advance so I can continue to release a couple of episodes after the baby comes till I figure out what's going on with my schedule. Anyhow, if you enjoy the show, please do consider supporting it via Patreon. It is vital, especially now to see that support. These episodes take a lot of work to produce and schedule and research and edit, so any help to keep the show going would be much appreciated. Now on to the episode. Welcome to panel 17, or Campus SJWs Destroying Western Civilization. Today I have got an excellent panel of professors, lecturers, and PhDs here with me, all people with tons of recent campus experience. And it sure feels great to be the least educated one on the panel, with my lame regular bachelor's degree, Anywho, I will let them all introduce themselves. Guys, do plug your Twitter handles and anything else you may want to. Matthew?
1: Hi. Uh, yeah, Thanks for having me on again, Ina. Uh, I'm Matt Sears. I teach classics and ancient history at the University of New Brunswick. And uh, my Twitter handle is at Matthew A. Sears. Uh, and there's a lot of fireworks usually on there. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm really happy to be here.
0: Awesome. And next we've got Katia.
2: Hi, I'm Katya Tima. I uh, teach at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Most of my work is in writing studies. I teach a lot of research writing courses to students, how to produce research, how to write a paper. And occasionally I also teach in the English department there. And my Twitter handle is at Katia underscore Tima, which is a German name, hard to remember and pronounce. It's pronounced Tima. T-H-I-E-M-E. Great. Aaron?
3: Uh, My name is Aaron. I teach at Rutgers University, uh, primarily ethics and critical thinking in the philosophy department in the Honors College. Um, My Twitter handles are at ETVPod and I've got one uh, at ZeroGPhilosophy for the other podcast.
0: Great. Well, thank you all, guys. Thank you so much for joining me here today. It's been... uh, tough to schedule this one always is when there's like more than two people but uh, i think we'll have a good conversation
1: yeah i think so too
0: yeah matthew you were great you were just on a couple of episodes ago to talk about orientalism and disney's aladdin i got so much positive feedback for that episode so pleasure to have you back on
1: well that was that was fun to do and uh I, i ordered a copy of habibi after that and loved it and several of my friends have picked it up and it was a i got a lot of good feedback from that one too
3: awesome with the graphic novel yes that's a really good one
1: it is it's it's beautiful
3: yeah and, it's, uh, and challenging. the same guy who did blankets i think right yeah it is yes mm-hmm.
1: yeah
0: so what do you guys think are sjw's destroying western civilization
3: uh, obviously <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah where where's the lie
3: This is is an easy conversation. Do we start drinking now? Done. We're Um, done.
0: Um, No, I mean, like, and campuses are this special place where you guys are all watching this happen, right? Like, everything's burning to the ground, and, you know, people are calling you racist every day when you walk down the halls.
3: I, I mean, I'm curious about other folks' thoughts, but, like, I ask my students every semester in the ethics courses, like, what are your thoughts on free speech and, like, campus activism? And, like... 80% 80% of them have no idea what I'm talking about when I talk about, like, this huge debate about whether or not they are fragile, privileged, over needy individuals or not. They're not even thinking on that level about things that much, I find. So, I don't know. Maybe i people have different experiences.
2: I think um, they might not think in those abstract terms and and in the kind of legal and research background that we're thinking about it. But I find they actually think about it a lot in terms of their own outlook on life and their own opportunities, um, their own experiences. I have a really diverse UBC is a really has a, such a mixture of people, um, people from all over the place, all kinds of different social strata, and um, international students and. Um, they get it on a really personal level. Like, they are—they are many of my students are way more radical than I am, mm-hmm. and um, have way more reformist and revolutionary designs on society than I do.
0: Well, that's true for young people generally, right? Like, it is. Yeah. I remember when I was in university, I had all these ideas and things that I thought I would carry out in life that, you know, are seem so impractical to me as someone who's Grown mm-hmm. from that, it's it's all nice on paper. Like, I will never watch TV again. It is so evil, but like, it doesn't happen, right? Oh, yeah,
3: mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, I
0: watched Manufacturing Consent, and I had
2: uh, <laughs> I had some plans after that that didn't right. come through.
3: <laughs> I, I do think you're right to make that point that they do live it, and that one thing that struck me when I was listening to like the height as recline discussion that I feel like was part of leading up to having this part of the discussion was part of this debate is about whether or not the reality that these students are living through is the kind of problematic reality that would radicalize a reasonable human being because a lot of this hinges on whether this is over the top overreactions to not real problems or whether they are just getting more sort of that lived experience of this is getting worse and people aren't paying attention and we need to be more active about about it that way
0: right can you explain what that conversation is that you just referenced just for the audience who may not know
3: oh sure um Ezra Klein on his show had Jonathan Haidt on to talk about his most recent book The Coddling of American Minds and they went back and forth as Ezra's been doing a lot of this like with the the Sam Harris uh interview Mm -hmm. as well this like Discussion, large discussion about the issue of tribal identity and the people who are claiming to be pushing back on the left's tribal identity while also claiming to lack any tribal identity themselves. <laughs> um, and I think the conversation with height really sort of emphasized a lot of the, the difficulties that are, that are going on because there is a real problem that is happening, but it's being sort of obscured by people including height, coming in and having their own narratives and sort of putting them forward without recognizing that they are narratives
0: mm-hmm. yeah and that that whole uh crew that focuses on the anti-sjw does that a lot i feel like they talk about how tribal everyone else is and how they just right. aren't and I think it really takes away from actually identifying some of the valid criticisms of left Mm -hmm. SJW type things because there's no proportionality and everything is just the worst thing in the world that these like there was an article i think a couple years ago that sam harris tweeted out it was about a professor who was reprimanded for wearing a halloween costume at a party where students were attending but this person was wearing blackface even if the intent wasn't to mock or whatever it's still something that I think that is understandable why a university would not find that acceptable behavior coming from a professor.
1: Well, it just shows such remarkably poor judgment. I mean, obviously, the history of blackface and minstrel shows and things like this, someone you know, should be aware of that and know the kind of hurt that you're perpetuating by dressing up. But just the sheer lack of common sense and wearing something like that to a party where there'll be students let alone anyone else uh yeah that i could understand why a university would would be worried that maybe this person doesn't exercise the best judgment in other spheres of their academic activity as well
0: (laughs) right exactly so i mean this isn't really a stifling of free speech in my opinion it's an understood taboo in our society like most people agree that wearing blackface now in you know post 2000s world is just not acceptable sure if you find someone doing it like in the 80s it's not fair to shit on them now for it because all of us have grown right. and evolved
1: right yeah i mean it in my yeah. own experience on campus to tie into what 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 Aaron and, and Kacho were saying um i haven't experienced anything like that like any students let alone faculty Trying to do get away with something as outrageous as blackface, and my st- student population that I deal with is going to be, I think, considerably different, uh, especially than than Kachas. I think the ethnic diversity in the field I teach in and at the university I teach in is going to be different certainly and probably less in some respects and so but i do uh, agree with kache in the sense that a lot of my students are dealing with this and it's particularly the in the indigenous students are the ones at the university of new brunswick that i think are kind of on the front lines of actually having to uh, to overcome this like the stigma attached to Indigeneity uh, in the community that we live in here, um, and the university is trying to take some steps to to do that. But but it, it, they've been sort of on the forefront of, of 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 having to receive you know posters that people heard about last year at UMB that uh, uh, claimed the residential schools weren't that bad. Look Thompson Highway saying good things about them, all that stuff. Um, but the only actual complaints and and student kind of outbursts that I've heard have been from those students who. Follow me on Twitter because they don't like me uh, and claiming that I'm not taking their conservative opinions seriously um, when those opinions are things like being against immigration from non-European countries and things like that. And my response is, often, well, I don't I don't take that particularly seriously. But it's uh, <laughs> but th- those are the only actual kind of run ins I've had uh, with students.
2: Uh-huh. I mean, you've been particularly outspoken on Twitter. Um, most no, of, of us course. Yeah. <laughs> Many of us aren't. So no, I haven't had any any run-ins with students in that sense at all. Well,
1: and I didn't. I mean, this wasn't even a run-in. I actually had a, a colleague who is was TA uh, a large course that he's incidentally on Western civilization. So I'm a real I'm a sleeper agent. I'm in there to destroy it from within uh, as I'm <laughs> teaching about it. Uh, but 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 came up and and suggested that there was two of her students and in her tutorial were upset that. That uh, I made a couple offhand remarks. Uh, I was talking about Roman cosmopolitanism or something, uh, and a couple offhand remarks about how, you know, being against immigration and, and, and a certain level of cosmopolitanism just doesn't work. And and look how effective Rome was, and you know something like this. And and, and they were just worried that their perspectives weren't given given a fair hearing. And, and were worried that I wasn't offering them debate, but they didn't actually come and try to debate me. I'm happy to talk to them about it. <laughs> um, but it was it was it was sort of funny, I, you know that that. But uh, so I haven't had any students actually come up to me personally. Uh, they've just kind of tried backdoor kind of attempts to get me, I guess, talk more favorably about you know monocultural states or something. But uh, uh, it has not quite come up beyond that. <laughs>
0: It's interesting that um, this whole framing of student fragility and sensitivity is always based around lefty students being overly fragile. When it can easily be someone on the other end of the political spectrum, just depends on what you're talking about, right? And it's odd to me how it's always framed from one particular angle.
3: And, like, when I teach ethics, my goal is not to indoctrinate people into a leftist ethical view my goal is to teach them to look at the ethical trade-offs that come with any view and learn to set objections against any position that they try to hold so that they can strengthen their own position and so i deliberately sort of talk in certain ways and avoid certain jokes and like avoid expressing my own perspective as a way to make it essentially a sort of safe space for specifically conservative (laughs) students to be able to say i really think that we need stronger immigration laws or something like that so that there can be that that room for that dialogue but i totally think that i spend a good bit of time and energy on like being pc for the conservative and like and I wouldn't call them fragile. I think it's just, you know, it's it's a, respect of, a way to be respectful when you have power over someone.
0: No, but sure. I meant it in the way that they call everybody else fragile. Sure. Right? No,
3: absolutely. So right. In no, that no, I,
0: way, agree. Yeah. it applies to them as well.
1: To uh, add on to what, what Aaron was saying, I think, too, the context is important. And so if you're teaching, uh, you know, certain courses, like on ethics, for example... Mm -hmm. um there there needs to be a more i I think a space for certain kinds of dialogue from different ends of political spectra uh and that's not necessarily the case when i'm you know for example the course that i got in trouble in was 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 a course with 400 students in the room and it's a survey of western civ and uh you're you're kind of going to approach that in a different way it's much less of a Uh, You know, I, of course, encourage the students to think for themselves and they have discussion sections in in, in that. But but also different kinds of material and different kinds of questions are more or less open to having that um, that possibility of, you know, wide ranging debate and wide ranging perspectives. And I think that's uh, something that's missed in the conversation is Mm -hmm. the nuance of different kinds, of courses, different Mm -hmm. sizes of classes different compositions of students the first year versus you know senior students that kind of thing
2: um i want to pick up on aaron's point about having power over students um i find and and connecting it to this question of are they fragile or um there's a lot of responsibility students have for each other too in the classes that I teach. Um, I spend a lot of time helping them build relations with each other so we can have those conversations in class and those discussions because it's not just about how what I say, it's also about how they speak to each other. And now I don't think I have a lot of very right-wing students in my courses, or if I do, they don't show themselves to me in this way. Um, it's because they're being silenced. They're being silenced. No, actually it's <laughs> the students who have social justice goals, um, they have, you know, they have they have developed skills in having those conversations. That's like, they have to be credited for that. And I have, um, I've had just incredible moments where they were, you know, they were taking care of each other in, in the debate. Or take care of opposing views, where they were just with incredible skill and care and 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 intellectual engagement. Um, they were responding to you know anti-trans statements or 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 something that could be perceived as anti-feminist or or they they they've, they've got skills in responding to that. Well, it's
3: nice um, to hear. There's
2: that nothing they... fragile about that.
3: Yeah,
1: that they're
0: being considerate of each other because that's not really the impression that you get from the outside of the campus world. Like, it's been quite <laughs> a few years since I've been on campus. So, you know, if, to me, if I were to believe everything I read about it, it just sounds like it is crazy out there, you know? Like, things are just it's burning to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So oh, I'm like how much they're burning has... to
3: the ground, but like they're burning to the ground because there's not enough money to fund. Basic academic work, like, then like it's all being changed from tenure positions to like people who aren't getting benefits. Like, if you there are problems, but they're just not those problems.
0: Right, right. So it's not like people throwing chairs at each other for having a hairstyle someone didn't like, or you know, sure. That sounds
2: like a good performative piece.
3: Yeah, somewhere <laughs> out there there are people doing those things. I will never deny that. Yeah, not, some people bad actors out there making poor choices. I I do think you're right that we need to push back on the whole fragility idea. Um, the two main arguments that Height lays out for his position are that they have been overly coddled because we had a sort of think of the children moment in this culture that caused us to like overly protect them against situations. And so they're not experiencing the kinds of challenges that build up virtue. And then they go off to these kinds of situations and they feel like they need to be empowered by calling people out and so they have to play this kind of victimhood card and so it reinforces um, their psychology and I think we can push back and say look there may be some of that in the first part that may be true that like partly because of the conservatives I think right people got very afraid and so they misjudged risk a little bit and so maybe we we need to reassess our risk a little bit but the I the second part I think we want to be more skeptical because I think there is more injustice to be called out than people like Hyde are willing to concede. And well, so And that- then
0: they talk about victimhood narratives, but they mm-hmm. don't mention the victimhood narrative that they're playing into, right? Like,
3: mm-hmm. what
0: kind of a world is it where you can't even wear blackface anymore? You know, like, sob, sob. What kind of yeah. a world is it that you get fired from the Atlantic for being a writer that thinks women should be hanged for having an abortion or something? It's just—it's ridiculous to me that that thinking those things beyond the pale is so outrageous to them.
2: From a pedagogical point of view, I find it an absurd argument. I have I have small children. I've been in the daycare and the school system. I've observed those. I followed those teachings, and um, I studied uh, developmental psychology as an undergrad. And it's it's absurd as a university professor to complain about students like from (laughs) from a pedagogical perspective that is just beyond the pale if you're a teacher you take who you get you don't get to choose (laughs) you don't get to complain about them you work with the students that you have um and you try to reach get them to a point that you want them to be but to write books about how bad (laughs) what's what's wrong with the people in the room that you're tasked to teach um it's i don't know it's like you're you're painting yourself into a corner there as a teacher
1: that's a great point catch it i'm i'm glad i'm glad you brought that up because i don't know about you know the other people on this panel but but i've certainly fallen into that trap before of complaining all the time about my students it's usually in you know in a different way than 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 height would complain about his students but or students in general but you know that whole kind of rate your students they used to have that website where uh, Professors would complain about students being, quote, entitled or fragile or snowflakes and all these other kinds of things. But I actually had some colleagues, you know, a few years ago that work in things like student services and in the advising offices, you know, talk to me about these issues and about why students need accessibility um, provisions and why students are accessing this service or that service and, and you know, why students might struggle with writing and things like that. And uh, I found my own teaching and my own interaction with students once I've kind of accepted them as they are, as you say, Katya, and once I've started to kind of understand some of the background and some of the different pressures, some of the, you know, the different demographic issues that are happening with who's being enrolled and who's signing up for what courses. I found it's been a much richer experience for me. And and as just sort of kind of adopt the attitude of, you know, kids these days. Uh, you know, aren't <laughs> like students were when, you know, and, 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 you know, what were students like when I was a student, you know, because obviously all of us were you know fairly successful in the classroom, but we didn't know, like the professors did, um, who was struggling with what. And uh, it's an unhelpful attitude, I think, to, to this kind of catastrophic, uh, apocalyptic view of students are worse than they've ever been, and, and universities are worse than they've ever been. And I think things change, and, and, and we should kind of you know, react to that and, and adjust to that and, and understand that. But uh, yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up this, that, that kind of reflex that too
3: many of us sometimes have.
2: Yeah, you have to but, resist that whenever you can and work with what you have,
3: yeah. I definitely agree with both of y'all. It's hilarious because Haidt in that interview says that like the problem is black and white thinking that catastrophizes leading to bad reasoning. And I, I think you're right to highlight that Many of the critiques that these people are raising against the left are functionally true about the anti push, you know, the anti call out culture, that it is itself a kind of catastrophizing call out culture that overemphasizes extreme examples to try to paint what is effectively a large conspiracy theory about the idea that academia both the students and the um administrations are coming together to hide very fundamental truths for the sake of political control essentially right that's that's a pretty questionable thing to claim i also i just wanted to add um the stuff that y'all were talking about about you're switching your view on your students um this is something we talk about a lot on embrace the void the idea of moral luck is something in ethics that I'm really obsessed with, which is the mm. when people are held morally responsible for things that are beyond their control, it's something that we do all the time and we're not good about it or consistent and it creates the kind of social injustices that you see with sure. systemic inequalities and like systemic mm. poverty. Um, and so I think you're right that we really have to look at the factors, the causes like the increase in internet culture and how that changes the landscape for everyone
1: uh the the fact that that, that my instinct is to and too many of my colleagues instinct is to complain about students who've never really been expected to write detailed writing assignments that they don't know how to write detailed writing assignments and Mm -hmm. you know even thing is something as simple as that and then when you add on to the different you know major cultural changes like being connected all the time and what that does to discourse etc uh and I like that moral luck. I think I'll uh, I'll definitely uh, check that out a lot more.
3: There, there's a Nagel paper. It's like seven or eight pages long, and it's like okay. my it's my thing that I try to proselytize to everyone whenever mm-hmm. I can. Nagel has said, like all good philosophers, I think at one point he's probably said something that should have been published anonymously in the controversial journal of ideas <laughs> that are special. <laughs> oh, we'll
0: get to that. We'll get to that. Aaron, you brought up a, a, such an interesting perspective, though, that you. Try to be PC for your conservative students so that they can feel safe to express their views. And that's just something that's never, like, I feel like that probably happens a lot, yet nobody really talks about that kind of thing, you know? Just in the (coughs) atheist scene alone, I've seen how many people have to be super careful just to say that someone blatantly racist is racist you know, and in that movement, there's a sort of like a reverse PC culture and a reverse, like, you know, they make fun of this wokeness culture, but they're, they've got their own wokeness culture. They're so woke that they're able to mock these SJWs. They're able to write these hoax papers that end up sort of proving about them what mm-hmm. they set out to prove about others, and this idea that they're just absolutely not tribal. Well, I would know if I was being tribal. No, no, you wouldn't. It's it's just so ridiculous to me that people can't see through that.
3: And before you get a million comments of people saying stop with the whataboutism, I think I want to defuse that this is not a logical fallacy to point this out because... Part of their central argument is that the left or identity politics or someone is engaging in a kind of reasoning that avoids the truth, that is distinct from the way that they are engaging. And they use that as a foundation on which to claim that their version of the world, the sort of Steven Pinker, everything is better than you think it is version, is the one that we should all lean towards but they don't they can't really back it up it feels like and so i think we should i guess push back on that
0: yeah and it's a everything is better than you think it is to serve a specific purpose it's not just to like cheer people up it's mm-hmm. to like downplay racism downplay mm-hmm. the effects of other injustices and that's a
3: relative privation argument with yeah. with more data
0: yeah And some really flawed sources, like Christina Hoff Summers, if you're talking about rape, that is not a Mm -hmm. reliable source. Mm -hmm. So Um, There's
2: research, too, that says um, uh, liberal and left-leaning professors um, just don't let their political views be present in the way they teach. I just came across that on twitter the other day No, i don't remember who said it um but yes apparently there's research that uh, on how um while when you ask professors for their political opinions a lot of them will lean left but uh when you ask about what students think their professors political opinions are those don't necessarily come through in the teaching because we make a lot of effort to let the material stand in the mm-hmm. room like the work that we do the, the methods that we use, the materials we study, um, and the questions that are asked in the research, um, and some of these terms, the use of these terms will be inflected by political views, but um, it's not, um, that's sort of behind the scenes, and sort of in between us and in between our political views and the students is the material and the methods that we use. It's kind um, of
0: like left-leaning media too, right? Try so hard to be unbiased and fair, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, <laughs> we do oh. try hard. <laughs>
2: yeah, I have,
3: a, I have a question for you all about this, actually. Speaking of like specific situations in different classes, I'm prepping a class next semester on environmental ethics. And so there's going to be debates over, you know, sustainability and social injustice as applied to climate change and, and reparations and for people being forced to migrate, things like that. And there's also a more fundamental question that I face of... Pretty much most of the material treats climate change as a scientific given. And, like, do I even set up any kind of like, do I just say, look, we're taking this as a given empirically? And, like, any conservatives in the room who are uncomfortable with that, sorry? Or, like, Uh,
1: uh, well, I'm glad uh, (laughs) that's a, that's a, I mean, you're going to (laughs) deal with that, I think, a lot more in the United States, Mm -hmm. to be frank. I mean, I, I mean, we're in a fairly conservative, Kind of you know socially conservative part of Canada, New Brunswick, but nobody really gets upset when you talk about the sort of fact of anthropogenic climate change. Um, but I think back to my first biology class in university. So I'm a first year student. I grew up a, a conservative Baptist of all things, and the the professor walks in in the first day in New Brunswick. So like three quarters. Of the class will have gone to Sunday school. That's not longer the case, but it was then. And he says in the very first day, he says, "Okay, this class evolution is a fact. Um, it's the fundamental basis of all the other things you're going to learn in this class. If you have hangups about that, that's not my problem. Uh, this is just the way it is. And so I'm sorry, but we're getting that out of the way first. Now I don't know that that's the best approach, because you're going to get people's backup, but." I would tend to address it um, and, mm-hmm. and 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 you bring up like this is a controversy, especially politically, but um, I think you're well within your rights as a professor to say you know this is a political controversy, but really the overwhelming weight of the the literature suggests that it's not a scientific one mm-hmm. um, but you but you don't have to be as flip about it as my biology professor was perhaps
0: i mean i i um I'm kind of I, I I like the way that your professor approached that, but yeah, I can see how it can get people defensive. But then then we're in this territory of, you know, do we really have to be so accommodating and careful about not offending anyone, no matter what the facts are, right? Like do, when you talk about the Holocaust, are you going to be like, you know, and some people might not be uh, agreeing with the figures here, but. Or do you just say like, well, no, this happened, or this is fact, and these are the numbers?
2: I um, so I teach this uh, research writing course to first year students, so their first years, and we we really jump in at the deep end, and um, I'm there to support, but we are jumping in the deep end, um, all of us. So they're reading research articles in the first year, okay. and I chose them, um, and they represent different disciplines because it's a multi like it's they're prepared, they're being prepared for. Um, producing undergraduate research and whatever subject they go into and um, so there will be a lot of things in there that are difficult to accept for some students but there are so many in there I can't really prepare anyone individually for it so we'll read indigenous scholarship and people who come with racist ideas about indigenous people um, you know I'll, I'll talk them through it, but there's no extra provision in, this, in the course to, mm-hmm. uh, to, to carry them along or to sort of give extra time and accommodation to that, uh, aside from me working with the students and helping them. And the, you know, like it's academic material, so they're struggling with that. I'll, I'll have something about the Stonewall riots and LGBTQ oral history. So this, you know, there's just a lot of topics that a lot of students would struggle with for many different reasons. And this is where I present it as this is where research is at. This is where the conversation is at. And and you kind of have to gauge where you are in relationship to it. And I'm here to help you get closer to this conversation. But I'm not changing the course as a whole or what we as a group are doing um, in, in consideration of sort of a
1: particular issue. That's a nice approach. I like that. that I'm here to help you um, get, you know, Understand your relationship to the current state of research, but the current state of research is what it is. Yeah, it is that's, what it is. Right, yeah. right. We've thought
2: about this and written about this for for you know like decades. So, right. and you you're at a research university. That's sort of you know the trump card. This is a research university,
0: and so this is the conversation that's happening at a research university.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I think that makes sense as well.
0: I think in our quest to be overly kind and accommodating, we should be careful not to be overly accommodating to views that are just plain factually inaccurate or try mm-hmm. to soften the blow of such things. I mean, there's always ways to phrase it that you're not unnecessarily douchebaggy, right?
3: Right. Yeah, of
2: course. Of course. I mean, that's where the the pedagogical, you know, imperative comes in. I'm the teacher to there to guide and help. Yeah. And um that's that's
3: my job. Yeah, Good. I agree. And I think um, luckily I have the advantage of like I can crib out and say, you know, I'm a philosopher, not a scientist. So <laughs> I don't I, I don't get to know what the arguments are on that side as well. But we and then like then it becomes a question of how much do I I mean, how, how do I play both sides of questions like should people who are going to face. Um, you know, mass droughts that force them to relocate. You know how, should they be given some sort of compensation for that by countries that are the driving forces of climate change? Like that's where sort of things can get very tricky, I think, in terms of what level of response people actually want or feel like there should be on the other side to make things seem, sort of quote-unquote fair
1: right so you're saying that you would in addressing issues like that would have to consider or present views that maybe from a principled point of view or a knowledgeable point of view suggests that we shouldn't pay reparations for a certain set of reasons like so or if yeah. there are two sides to that kind of discussion yeah or like
3: it? um like talking about um you know carbon reduction or emissions reduction talking about like well, what about the fact that uh, you know there are, and like some of, some of this I am sympathetic to, and we'll try to include. And I think it does point to like how folks on our side are off our side, quote unquote, are often willing to have the conversations that these folks are claiming we're not willing to have. Click conversations like, you know, think of all of the people who are being pulled up out of poverty as a result of right, these, okay. these different things. Can you really suddenly close the door on? social progress for a bunch of other cultures as a way to ad- address these issues essentially like so right. so i think there are often you know other sides that just like i you know i TA'd once for a course that was on human nature and diversity and it talked about all the biological and cultural differences and biological and cultural evolution and it was a really interesting course where they said every every one of the kind of controversial things that they claim that people aren't allowed to say in colleges without getting yelled at by students and like nobody yelled there was no yelling there was like you know a couple of pushbacks on various things but they were all very reasonable so Maybe my school isn't one of the top 100 schools, though, and so it's not amongst the liberal elites.
0: I mean, there's always going to be examples that you can pick out where people are behaving unreasonably. And earlier, Erin, you said Mm
3: -hmm. you made
0: an important distinction. I forget how you phrased it, but you said it hinged on whether this is a response to something that doesn't exist or an over-the-top response to something that is an injustice that exists, but people are just not responding proportionally. Something mm-hmm.
1: like that, right? That's the distinction yeah. you made. Well, this is what's what's funny um, is, of course, there are people, and Aaron said this, that are behaving badly <laughs> on on both sides, but but certainly there are quote unquote SJWs that are going out there and and doing ridiculous things and being unfair to people and yeah. and making terrible arguments and and deplatforming people. I think in ways that maybe aren't equitable or aren't. Aren't fair, but but every time I see you know someone sees on that kind of those isolated cases, my instinctual response is to say you know news flash, college students act you know ridiculous, uh, yeah. and, and have a have ridiculous like protest. I mean, this is what college students do,
3: uh, and but I think
0: and it's been that way for ever right because
3: they're they're learning they're like building yes. up that muscle very slowly and with a lot of mistakes yeah exactly yeah, yeah. and so I, I do think to give to, again to go back to um Ina's point about how we need to give credit where credit is due on what things are true in this conversation and not always just be like here's where the distortions are i do think that the internet allows amplification of a previously functional mechanism for how we as a as a species were engaging with bad actors where we would have this kind of shaming call out culture that would that would influence pro social behavior and that like when you mix in the internet's ability to amplify that times a thousand right or a million people can see this and shame (sighs) a person that that does I think cause the system to go a little haywire but for one thing it causes again a problem on all sides. Right. Like, so it right.
0: also provides a way for, say, far right actors to come mm-hmm. together, for Nazis to reemerge, things that, you know, we didn't see much
3: of. For Jonathan Haidt and Sam Harris to re- retweet. All of the examples of the the kind of catastrophizing that they want to emphasize, while kind of ignoring that that retweeting is itself a kind of catastrophizing. And that if <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna be more functional about this. You need to stop punching, like he likes to say, like we would say, punching down at these people who are or who are not doing a very good job sometimes, but they're trying and like start talking about the ways to make the situation better. But I don't they don't do that partly because I think they do want to push this larger narrative that yes. there are certain key truths that are being suppressed and that like there's a moral problem that that we need to emphasize that makes it important that we Call out that makes it important that James Lindsay write 13,000 words apparently on why uh, call out culture and, and social justice is another religion. I really hate that framing, but like. I mean,
0: it's so boring. It's so it's... overdone. And you can say the same thing about anti social justice, uh, you know, call out culture too. That is also in the same exact ways another religion. Yeah.
3: We're all cults now.
1: We're all, I mean, that. <laughs> And if I make me
3: even a little more cynical, it, it,
1: it's they, they, do, they do this be, because they want to, I mean, and we all do it to a certain degree, um, but set up this grand narrative, but ultimately they do it to sell books, too, and oh, to sell yeah. this book. And you don't intentionally call something the coddling of the American mind in a clear reference to that other book. Uh, the closing of the American mind um, without wanting to sell a lot of copies of books. And you're going to sell more copies of books. The more you, you know, with your megaphone on social media, proclaim that this is like an existential crisis in higher education. It's also Um, the
0: trendiest topic ever, right? Like,
1: so oh, it's the
2: trendiest topic since what the nineteen forties.
1: <laughs> Sometimes I've on you know, social media these lists of these alarmist headlines about higher education, stretching back to you know like the forties and fifties and sixties. Oh yeah. Uh, and they're they're so remarkably <laughs> identical, you know. And it is again. I just I I, I sum all this up as the, the sort of kids these days philosophy.
0: Exactly. Of, uh,
1: of, you know every new generation is the worst. Uh, And every change is the worst and it's going to be the end of Western civilization. And, you know, and it's just it's hard to be detached from it. And it's hard to kind of step back and take a a long view and a a distant kind of objective view to the situation we're all in right now. Um, But it it is remarkable that Twitter uh, simply seems to amplify the exact same points that people have been making (laughs) forever uh, and in the same ways,
3: I, I just think it's particularly morally suspect for someone like Haidt, who is a moral psychologist, and who, in his first book, one of the things he gets right in in um the righteous mind is that. Uh, the human mind works more like an uh, elephant rider where the elephant is your emotions and the rider is reason. And if the elephant isn't happy, the rider doesn't really have any control over the situation. Like, he, right. I think he's mostly right that if you want to be effective in engaging with people, you have to speak to their emotional and evaluative preferences and not just to their pure reason. And then he turns around and names the book The Coddling of the American Mind. Like, that's not, yeah. a, that's not a good way to get the elephant happy, is what I'm saying. And, like, if, if your goal was to address and engage with the people you claim to want to address and engage with, you wouldn't name it that. If your goal was mm-hmm. to uh, excite attention and sort of virtue signal a little bit to certain other individuals, then mm-hmm. that's what you do. Right.
2: Uh, it seems to me there's a real... Um... Uh, div- not, not division, but there's sort of tendencies. There's um, people like you guys who are really like immersed in university culture and do your best to change it and to improve it and to critique it. Um, and then there's just this over emotional uh, shouting to uh, to the public about what's wrong at universities.
0: Over emotional, um, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hysterical one would say. Hysterical but... one could say. <laughs> <laughs> nope. But Matthew, and you a... were posting on Twitter the other day about the word hysteria, right?
1: Yeah. Well, so etymology is a a, a, a tricky thing because mm-hmm. a lot of words have etymological roots that aren't really operative in the definition of the word today. And so we we shouldn't judge a word necessarily by its historical use and its and its etymology, but hysteria uh, yeah, I talked about how we should probably stop using the word hysterical and hysteria and its related kind of uh, its related words because it actually does come from the word for uterus, and it was used as as a as a way to describe you know a woman that was in a state of hysteria was being made you know mentally unwell because of you know something wrong with her uterus, uh, and so it's you know a deeply misogynistic term. Um, but, you know, nobody thinks of that when they say, if they say something's hysterical, it's either funny
0: yeah.
1: or, or, you know, people are acting in a way that, they're as you were just saying, like driven by emotion. And the reason that, that, I, that I brought it up is not to be a pedant, because I know the Greek roots of words. Um, mm-hmm. But if you know Greek, you're automatically really pedantic and you have to fight against that all the time. But it's <laughs> not just to be pedantic, but it's because I was reacting to just a series of threads I'd come across where, especially anti trans threads Mm. where hysterical and hysteria is used, often in LGTB contexts, but especially lately I've seen in trans contexts. So any kind of trans activist or any kind of movement to educate people or to sensitize people to trans issues is called hysterical. Like the movement is is run by these hysterical people, which it's a deliberate use. Right. It it it, I think it's deliberately used in its misogynistic way that way, especially for um, uh, women. male to female trans persons mm-hmm. uh, as a way to say, look, these are actually just unhinged feminine men That's who the whole like um,
0: framing women. of the left as hysterical and, <laughs> you know, soy he, boys it, it, and things like that it, as
1: well. It's hard, to, it, it, it's hard to disentangle that kind of language and that kind of rhetoric from, as you say, from, from what is essentially a kind of hyper masculine kind of pushback to it so nobody okay. says soy boy unless they're actually calling into question your masculine credentials and it's those people that i find on twitter use words like hysteria and hysterical a lot so yeah that's why i brought it up because yeah. it, it from just casual observation it seems like that's the kind of way it's used now but, so it's but very i struggle gr- with that study.
0: oh yes. yeah I struggle with that though because um, you know I I personally would say that it would depend on the context of using it. Like I, I absolutely yeah. love using it uh, to describe anti SJWs who think they are so reasoned and rational and calm. And objective about everything.
1: When well, there's they- certainly a case to be made for turning the terms people okay. use as insults against them. Yeah, just I mean that would I would see that as similar to reclaiming negative terms, like you know uh, how queer people now have reclaimed the word queer, which was once an insult right. or even social justice warriors. Now, yeah, I'm a warrior for social justice. How terrible, yeah. you know, that, that kind of reclaiming. And so if someone's, you know, calling you over emotional by using the word hysterical to then flip that around might in certain circumstances be an effective, you know, kind of dig at them mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, and really lay there. Uh, I think criticize their own use of terms like that.
0: Well, and now you're you're a social justice warrior if you're against blackface, uh, race, and IQ. And... Well,
3: right. I mean, yes. Yeah, so
1: <laughs> well,
3: I, I think there there's a big question in all of this, which is where do you draw the line on what's a fight worth fighting? Because, right. like, height yes. height repeatedly criticizes, and these all these folks repeatedly criticize the left for not knowing how to pick their battles. But I think the the sort of claim pick your battles can sometimes be a condescending way to say, I don't think that what you're concerned about really matters. And like, especially they don't when it doesn't affect you, together.
0: right? Mm-hmm. It's easy right. for someone to say all identity politics is bad. Right. Mm-hmm. And group BLM with the KKK when they're a privileged white
3: Male. Yeah, as long as you can say that all, the, the phrase all identity politics is bad is now a form of tribal identity that <laughs> we need to like actively <laughs> wrestle with because it has a whole thing built around it now and it's clearly there. The only problem I have is when people say, I'm the one exempt from the tribal identity. Right, that's and really think, the
0: most yeah. indicative of how, just how blinded and tribal you are. Mm-hmm. And did recently, Dave Rubin said something on air, which was <laughs> <Sorry>. like, <laughs> I don't blame anyone for bursting into laughter or <laughs> hearing his name. Um, he said something like, calling people white supremacists is the equivalent of calling people the N-word.
3: Right. Not true. It's... <laughs> it's demonstrably false. I dare any. I dare him to go call bunch people the n word and see what happens. He, he didn't yeah. even
0: say it, like in his own example, right?
3: That's why I love this conversation about like policing words, because again, we're all drawing lines in the sand as a culture. What are the words that we're going to be decent human beings and decide not to use? And we've already kind of all signed off on a few. Even George Carlin didn't include certain words in his list. For a very specific reason, yeah. I think. So, yeah, I mean, like, claiming that it's gone too far now, I think, is, is there's not enough evidence. It gets strung together using a bunch of, sort of, like, PETA and a few, sort of, people who maybe could have designed their critique a little more effectively. But, like, I don't see the collapse of debate or the collapse of conversation or the collapse of art that they claim is coming like we're in this golden age of art that is not being censored to death by liberals
0: we're in this golden age of art where jbp wave is a genre of music is
3: it well that's horrifying
0: (laughs) and reich step oh no oh no (laughs) yeah oh
1: well, I, I I, actually that's 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 one of the my common responses to people when I'm talking with them is just what a world, <laughs> you know, seriously? you know, that's the only way you could respond to someone seriously saying that being called a white supremacist is the same as being called the N word or. You know, the other day, well, you bring up JPB being called a Holocaust, uh, sorry, a, a climate change denier is the same as being called a Holocaust denier. And, and, and they just. Well, you,
2: they have the word denier in there. They
1: both have the word it's that you can't argue. Argument. It's like the, all the people arguing that the National Socialists were socialists because it has socialists right there in the name. You're I right
3: mean, it's, it's, it's. All the Dinesh <laughs> making that argument.
1: Yeah, all the Dinesh decisions But, but this, is, this is, I think, sometimes the only thing you can respond is what a world right when uh, and and we've said this a couple times today just mm-hmm. the amplification effect that that social media and the internet has mm-hmm. on opinions that would just be some you know kind of kind of bonkers opinion that somebody has like you that know, they just don't shut up about at thanksgiving dinner has now <laughs> is now broadcast to yeah. you know tens of thousands of people yeah is That's changed things.
0: And that changes it from being something you would laugh at and just ignore. Like, oh, that's just
1: Uncle Frank, you know, but now it's...
0: (laughs) Exactly. Now it's Jordan Peterson making, I don't know, 100K a month on Patreon and defending way worse people when they get booted off of Patreon. Right. So and these are the free market people, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> who don't like when the market is uh, responding and working and shifting according to demands or according to their services being screwed by bad actors who mess it up for everyone.
1: Well, you never you know. see the argument from you know the sort of defenders of Sargon or uh, Milo that the internet sh- uh, and 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 social media platforms should be made public. Mm-hmm entities that's obviously not the that's the only logical argument in response to being you know upset that well capitalism is bit in the butt hasn't it i mean it's it's uh it's a little bit it's a little bit rich i think
2: yeah <laughs> would not that be nice I also, though yeah. if it became a part uh, if it mm-hmm. became a crown corporation and well, if it uh, a They utility, would have to abide like by the, the constitution
1: <laughs> yeah if it became a public utility then you'd have some arguments about who gets to and it would really be a free speech issue then it
0: would, yeah. Though it, it makes me anxious <laughs> as someone who grew up in Saudi for the state to have that oh, kind yeah, of sure. uh, power. I yeah, I can't say I'm completely on board with that, but no, uh, we're I'm worried
1: so enough worried. about Huawei phone <laughs> these days that mm-hmm. we don't want to have, you know the, the government maybe have even more access to these things, because. right.
0: But this denier argument really was the most amazing incredibly ignorant I, 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 I'm I, trying to put this in a polite way but I just can't, it, it was so so stupid that I, it, I thought it was also really telling in the
2: context of um, several people having pointed out that in his ongoing talk about um, Nazi Germany and, and the oh, and Nazi yeah. regime he has consistently left um, anti-Semitism and that the just the depth and long-standing nature of anti-Semitism at that time period out of this, out of his constant reminders that he gives us about how he has thought very long and very hard about the Nazi regime.
0: Yeah, and when someone in his own audience was like hurling anti-Semitic conspiracy theories at him and asking him to respond, he actually paused and just you know thought about it and said he couldn't do it but he didn't tell the person to shut up with this nonsense
3: uh-huh. yeah and and like the tricky thing is it's hard it's hard to have a conversation about the fact that the stuff the conspiracies about academic uh, academic you know um, people going wild in, in cultural
0: marxism
3: All yeah that that, that all has a background uh-huh, right in uh-huh. some of this anti-semitic views about the jews using uh academic professions to indoctrinate the masses into overthrowing like there <laughs> there's there's a whole backstory to this conversation that is you know it's really it's creepy but you, you can't really talk about it because you'll immediately get pushback that like well, obviously, I'm not saying that, or I don't believe that. I believe this slightly different version of this sort of roughly the same talking points with not a ton of different data points. right. So, I yeah. think
2: that's I think that's also where um, the denigration of humanities approaches mm-hmm. plays into it because I come from a language theory background. I studied linguistics. Um, so that these links between terms and how they're used, um, the distribution with which they're used in populations, the history that they have, this all matters in our understanding of an argument that someone's making. And um, I see a lot of these quasi-scientific approaches where people say, "No, no, no, you have to, you have to count like you have to have a replicable investigation into into this when mm-hmm. um, and." which denigrates these approaches that have been long established, humanities approaches that say, if you look at the history in which cultural Marxism has been used, um, and if you look at how it's being used right now, this is what it means, even if you deny it. Um, And
0: and it's being given legitimacy, like David Brooks put it in an article in (laughs) uh, the New York Times, and he's of Jewish background, is he not? Like, here's a quote. The younger militants tend to have been influenced by the cultural Marxism that is now the lingua franca in the elite academy.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. it's this whole the whole cultural Marxist and postmodernism and globalist and anything within fifty feet of George Soros. yeah, uh, it's all, as Katya said, I mean, it, there's there's a very rich context here mm-hmm. that that's real. In that context, for any language and any term, context is hugely important. And then to pretend it doesn't exist and you can use these terms in some kind of vacuum instead of being, you know, tapping into an actual, you know, context that gives these terms meaning mm-hmm. uh, is a is a disingenuous way to operate.
3: Yeah, and you... and a
1: dangerous way to operate.
3: Yeah, like, if you look for, like, where's the harm, right? You can look at Hungary banning gender yeah. studies. Right. Like, that's a far-right government cracking down on grievance studies, I guess we should call them, right? Uh, <laughs> like, and and what's really scary is when I see some of the... Fo- there are, to to their credit, some folks on the free speech side of things who will say, we're definitely not for that either, and we want these studies to be there. We don't think that they're fundamentally bad. We just think that they're currently slanted ideologically and need to be corrected
0: not the people a, who wrote the well, no. hoaxes and stuff they did they did want them like defunded and stuff did they right. not or am i mistaken well,
3: I'm, not, I'm not sure i'm not actually sure what Lindsay and them said but like there the other pushback is people will say well no these are pseudosciences because they have pushed this idea that these are not legitimate sciences as katia was saying like they will back the fascists taking away the funding because they think Uh that this is you know the same thing as backing homeopathy or something like Uh that
1: there's another kind of i think dark element to this too is that not only are they backing the fascists because they think these things are dangerous pseudosciences but it also i think is pretty telling that they hate something so bad so much something like gender studies so much uh-huh. that they're happy to sort of more or less support an actual fascist if it means that he's against gender studies uh and, and that's a pretty big deal so you can at the same time think gender studies is worthless and still think that Victor orban is worse
0: yeah uh-huh. <laughs> you
1: know and, and because you know I don't think uh you know gender studies is worthless obviously but but it it's pretty telling to me that an actual you know sort of kind of race baiting fascist who's you know actually cracking down militarily on ethnic minorities and and stoking kind of anti-soros anti-semitism is is not as dangerous as grossly underfunded departments in north american universities is is uh it's pretty telling i think
0: yeah and then there was jordan peterson who wanted to create a database of professors and courses that were infected by like postmodern neo, what, what is his uh, euphemism? neo-Marxist language. There you
3: um, yeah, go. Cultural yeah. Marxism, yeah.
0: Yeah, he doesn't use cultural Marxism, or at least he doesn't anymore, but he has a way to slip it in. And then he also w- said things like, you know, English literature was infected, law was infected, and all these things needed to be defunded right? Yep. Th- yet these fear mongers about the silencing of free speech, they just do not even touch upon these things. It's so hard to take them seriously. It's so hard to take them on their word that they actually care about free speech because here they are usually the ones that are holding hands with, allying with. Legitimizing people like Peterson, who absolutely do hate free speech, mm-hmm. um, I've, I monitored his um, his Twitter
2: account when um, the Brazilian elections uh, happened, mm-hmm. and their against, uh, Brazilian uh, happened, and when the crackdowns against Brazilian professors happened, and he's there was no there was no comment at all. So you know, yeah. like one of the most internationally recognized and reported cases of incredible infringement on academic freedom and freedom of expression for um, university faculty. Um, there was no commentary from Jordan Peterson at all.
0: <laughs> just want to put that on the record. Yeah, of course not. <laughs> and that's how it goes, sadly. Yeah. That's yeah. that
3: quality picking your battles that these people are oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. advocating. Yeah.
0: So then it just boils down to them weaponizing these select clips to
3: mm-hmm. push
0: something else. Mm-hmm. It's not about pushing freedom or equality or uh, whatever else they claim.
1: Yes. And, and what, what's really too bad is that this undermines any legit, legitimate critique of ideological mm. lack of diversity in universities. That's the thing. And, and and I think there really is. So it's the same kind of. You can turn the same argument that they often use that social justice warriors actually make people vote for Trump. Uh, mm-hmm. You can kind of flip that on its head for them and say, if you know, if you're trying to actually bring about reform in university disciplines, pulling a Sokal Square hoax like petulant children isn't Mm -hmm. going to do it. You know, it's only going to get people's backup, even if you might have some legitimate points to raise about certain departments and certain units. And so I actually do think as a professor in an arts faculty in a humanities discipline that there is a danger of being in an echo chamber. And there is a danger of only preaching Mm -hmm. to the choir. And there is a danger of never changing anyone's mind or never having your mind changed. Um, But you know, writing a book with a title "The Coddling of the American Mind" is not going to do it. It's it, it, you know, so that's what's uh, upsetting. If if real reform is going to happen, and if real self-examination and introspection is going to happen, where it needs to happen, it always should happen in in the academy, among students and amongst professors, and amongst the institutions themselves. These kinds of stunts, and I really think they're stunts. I mean, Peterson's just pure grift, pure money-making stunt uh it's not going to change anything for the better it's simply going to increase the kinds of polarization that they're they claim to be against
0: right and yeah. peterson's griftiness is it's just so blatant like he oh, i mean he sells be... his
1: he sells that stupid painting of his <laughs> like uh, that meaning of music He was making he was going to make like custom made like Carpets? floor mats that he was going to sell <laughs> I mean like, it's just no shame yeah he
0: you sells know? rugs too rugs. Yeah, I mean, it's just- thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations you can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it making some noise about it or contributing via Patreon patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes no Ian mangoes Also, you can follow me on Twitter at nice mangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal, nicemangos.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no E in mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too.